What, if anything, did we learn from the Twitter files? What, if anything, can Trump say in defense of suspending the Constitution? And what, if anything, is wrong with killer robots? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity, plus Jack Butler, who has been waiting, by the way, his entire adult life for this moment. For the opportunity to talk about killer ro- ra- robots, sorry, I keep on saying killer ra- rabbits, which uh, <laughs> there was one of those that famously assailed Jimmy Carter. But Jack has been waiting for this moment to talk about robots on a National Review podcast with great passion and cogency, I am sure. Congratulations, Jack. Our sponsors this episode are Acton Unwind, Quip, and Masterworks. And before I do anything else, let's hear a message from our friends at Acton Unwind. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Who can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in. Just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute, there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and stories that matter and demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as they promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash NR or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash NR to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. So speaking of unwinding, Jim Garrity, Elon Musk is unwinding and releasing all the perfidy that uh, went on at Twitter with regard to the suppression of the Hunter Biden story. Elon Musk is nothing if not a showman. So he hyped this um, news dump 5 p.m. Friday. I guess no one told him actually that's that that's uh, Infamous as the time where you release information you want to get buried. Uh, you release it then anyway. It did quite cause quite the stir. He gave it to Matt Taibbi, the uh, dissident-oriented left-wing uh, journalist who did um, a long Twitter thread on these various emails that he went through courtesy of Elon Musk. I'm not going to say we learned any um, any anything that was shocking or stunning. There was no quote unquote smoking gun where you had someone from the FBI saying, please you know, block this link or someone from the Biden campaign doing the same. But we got a, a more granular understanding of what was a really uh, distressing flub and the, the worldview of these, these people. And the attitude was, let's suppress first and ask questions later. Yeah, this was a, I would say, two cheers for Elon Musk and for Matt Taibbi and the release of the quote-unquote Twitter files. I would point out that it really wasn't files. It, there were a couple of screen uh, shots here and there. I very, really would have preferred if this had been on one clear, easy-to-read document on Twitter.com or something like that. Instead, it came out in a series of tweets, which made it kind of clunky to, to read through. Um, and I would have liked also links to the source documents to see a bit more of that. But by and large, it painted this ugly portrait of the individuals within the previous management of Twitter who basically came across this story in the New York Post and decided their job was to make sure no Americans could read it. Um, they were using tools for this that they usually reserve for things like child pornography. And the whole justification was this specious, dubious uh, never proven claim that it was based on hacked materials. And it sounds like once they made that initial decision, oh, by the way, without consulting CEO Jack Dorsey, uh, the people involved, like, well, we can't back down from this. <laughs> they just kind of kept, kept digging themselves in deeper. And if there was any, one of the few genuine surprises in it all was somebody who I'm not usually a fan of, uh, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, yep. who reaches out to Twitter and basically reminds them of the First Amendment, reminds them, kind of points out that, like, look, for the federal government to ever interfere with the publication of uh, of information, 
it's got to meet an extraordinarily high bar, you know, and they look at the, the, the legal case of uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. And he basically tries to kind of nudge them away and says, look, in the heat of a presidential campaign, restricting dissemination of newspaper articles uh, seems like it will invite more backlash than it will do good. So, hey, this buds for you, Ro Khanna, for remembering the First Amendment and for remembering that just because you don't like something or you don't, you're skeptical of something is not sufficient reason to say, no, we're not going to allow people to read it or see it. You know, no, Twitter is not a government structure, but that same philosophy seems to be at work. And the other, my other kind of thought about this is that, look, if Twitter had set itself up and said, look, we are a progressive social media platform, we're only interested in having progressives use this, uh, we are only interested in allowing people to read news that makes Democrats look good, they could have done that and conservatives just never would have signed on. Twitter never seemed like an explicitly political or ideological company. Lots of conservatives started using it. And then gradually over the years, they ratcheted up this attitude of censoriousness uh, towards conservative voices. And that's why everybody's PO'd. Uh, if you want to say, nobody's complaining about, you, know, you don't see conservatives complaining, hey, they're, they're, they won't let me on Mastodon. Yeah. So Jack Butler, a couple things. One, Ro Kahana, what he wrote was was great. It's just so rare we we hear anyone today, you know, elected official saying that this is something I support, but it's not legal. You can't do it. Or this is a story I don't like and thinks a nothing burger, but let it let it play out. You know, don't don't try to suppress it. And of course, he was right. It was going to cause a, a backlash that wouldn't be worth the effort. For Twitter, you've also had this former head of trust and safety, which now are among my least favorite words in the English language. You know, prior to a couple of years ago, they're perfectly fine uh, words, but uh, have been corrupted by this uh, age. And 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 this guy, he, he sounds like um, you know, he just came from a, a sit-in at a, a, a college president's office trying to get you know Ann Coulter disinvited from campus, or just came from the cheering section of, of Leah Thomas or, or something like that. Um, I, this guy should never have been had any influence on what what a, a massive social media platform was allowing or, or not permitting to be to be said. But even he said this was this was a mistake and we shouldn't have done this. And you saw it in the in the various emails back and forth. Well we're saying we're we're suppressing this because it's hacked, but we we don't know it's hacked. We know nothing about the provenance of it. Right. So I have mixed feelings about Twitter as a platform on a whole, and I'm sure we all do. So I am typically one of the people who likes to remind others that Twitter is not real life. And so sometimes when there are these intensely Twitter-focused news stories that are almost meta to the extent to which we're now poking at the innards of the thing, I I sometimes find it hard to get that worked up about them. But this one is different because we're poking at these innards and it has been revealed that a lot of the suspicions that conservatives have had about the platform are have been true all along. And uh, likewise, I have a, a sort of complicated view of the nature of the Hunter Biden story. Not that I think it was false or anything. It was obviously true from the moment it was uh, the, the Post first reported on it. I am not sure how uh, much of a difference the, twi- the actions that Twitter took really had like i think there may have been a possible streisand effect in the sense that it got magnified possibly by the very act of trying to suppress it and uh but regardless like the just the act of doing so i remember when this first came out and it was people were starting to report that this this tool that jim mentioned that is typically used to prevent the transmission of child pornography was being used to prevent people from sending this story to each other via uh, Twitter DM. And I just had to see this for myself. And so I tried it and I was, and it stopped. And I was like, wow, this is, that, that, that was just very unsettling. And it really changed. Uh, I mean, it, conservatives have never been happy with Twitter as a platform, really. Uh, but it really, that moment really changed the attitude uh, that many of them had about it. And especially the weird nexus that this this is something that uh, Michael talks about a lot. The weird quasi nexus between Twitter and government and even like intelligence agencies. That's just weird. And this the whole uh, the whole Hunter Biden story revealed that that may be more of a thing than we had even suspected, and that there's just this complicated, almost like Operation Mockingbird style attempt to use Twitter as a tool of. Uh, controlling and swaying public opinion. And if we have anything like that in the offing, 
then I think there are legitimate legitimate policy steps that can be taken uh, about that. Charlie will get into those, I'm sure, uh, next. But uh, the one that he's mentioned of basically making sure that if there are government efforts to uh, suppress or um, take down individual stories, that we know about this, that this is public information. Like if the, if the, if the government is trying to use a private platform as essentially a censorship agency, then we should know. And that, 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 so that makes all of this, this revelation of public information, I think ultimately salutary and uh, rouses me out of my typical, uh, I guess, stoic attitude about things that happen on Twitter that are excessively Twitter focused. So Charlie, there are two schools of thought uh, on this and a lot of people in between, but one is, wow, this is uh, just blows the lid off this massive scandal, the, the Twitter files. And another is like, ah, th- this is this is really a, a nothing burger. We didn't learn anything new here. And you, if I'm not mistaken, are in the latter camp. I'm in the latter camp because we already knew everything that was supposedly revealed, not because what we already knew was irrelevant. The details sustain the existing perception of what was a profound mistake. Now, I think it's important to separate out, which a lot of people have not done, the level at which these mistakes ought to be remedied. What we saw in those files and what we knew beforehand was that Twitter was badly run had been ideologically taken over and had, as a result, become much less useful as a tool in a pluralistic society in which half the country, more or less, is not on board with the agenda put forward by the Democratic Party and its friends. But that's a private question. And... That's a question that has, to some extent, been addressed by Elon Musk having bought it. I am pleased that many of the people mentioned or referenced in those files have been fired. I think they're pernicious. Some of them are very silly. And they're gone, and this is a good thing. But they could also not have been gone. In fact, the opposite could have happened. Instead of Elon Musk buying it, a left-leaning billionaire could have bought it and made it much worse, and that's fine. I wouldn't like it, but that would be fine. This is a free country. Then there is the question of government interference. Now, there was not actually any evidence of direct government interference in those files. If there had been... And insofar as there is, we have to address that. There's a massive difference between private entities making private decisions and the government leaning on private entities. And even if they're not directly demanding or forcing a decision, implying that they would like to see it. We cannot have a who-will-rid-me-of-this-turbulent-priest situation when government is involved. And I would like to preempt this by passing a federal law that mandates disclosure. Marco Rubio has written one. The prospect of the people who regulate major corporations such as Twitter in other realms, aside from speech, sending emails privately away from public view, saying, could you block this, suppress that, delete this account, is outrageous. And at the very least, we deserve to know when they do it and how they're doing it. So I draw this distinction because so many of the supposed remedies that I hear about for Twitter aren't just a bad idea, they're flatly unconstitutional. Elizabeth Warren does not get to decide what Elon Musk allows and does not allow on his platform. The state of New York, despite 
a law that went into effect yesterday, does not get to demand that Elon Musk have a hate speech policy and crack down on words that might be unpleasant, but that are not illegal in a civil or criminal context in the United States. But if government officials are going further and making demands of Twitter directly, then we have uh, a right to know. And I hope the Congress will pass a law mandating disclosure at the earliest possible opportunity. Jim Garrity, I have a question to you. Twitter's suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story swayed the 2020 election, yes or no? I'm going to go with no, certainly not on a significant enough level to change the outcome. Maybe you could find some voters here and there who, if they'd heard more about it, would have changed their votes. But uh, that's not, you know, Twitter's decision making is not the reason Biden is the president today. Jack Butler. Kind of already answered this, but I'll, I'll repeat no. And I can say that no, while still obviously not thinking it's a good thing that it happened. Charlie Cook. No, absolutely not. Again, that's a separate question from whether or not it was a good thing that it happened. It was a terrible thing that it happened. But the 2020 presidential election was swayed by Donald Trump and his erratic behavior. So I'm also a no. You could find the story other ways. It was pretty widely discussed. Uh, And Twitter at the end of the day is just not that important. It was shameful what it did, but it's it's not the be-all and end-all of American political debate. The, the bias of the media played a big role, but if you're a Republican, that's just an endemic feature of the system and one you have to be uh, able to overcome. By the way, I think worse than Twitter was the, the letter from the former intelligence officials that was completely misleading and dishonest, was used by Biden to lie about the laptop. Uh, in the last debate with Donald Trump, and none of these people, none of these people have have expressed any regret that I'm uh, that I'm aware of. So, with that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor. This episode, Quip. Do you like buying gifts that are clever, designed well, and fit into the recipient's aesthetic? <clears throat> well, let's then talk about Quip. From treats to travel, good oral habits can fall by the wayside over the holidays. Quip makes it easy to stay on track by delivering all the healthy mouth essentials you need for the season and beyond. I tend to try to take pretty good care of my teeth because if you don't, bad things happen. And even though I've taken pretty good care over the years, you know, stuff adds up. I had a crown just uh, a, week, a couple of weeks ago, a cavity filled. I need two appointments I need to get to with various dental uh, specialists. So if I was like Beto O'Rourke and I, I live stream this stuff, I, w- I would have had a lot of materials the last couple of uh, uh, weeks, but I would, of course, not subject anyone to that besides myself. So that's why you need Quip to help you from getting in the sort of situations I've been in in the first place. With Quip, you get timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean, a lightweight and sleek design for adults and kids with no wires, a bulky charger to weigh you down, a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter, reusable handles, and a range of sleek metal hues, including best-selling all black and all pink, as well as bright plastic colors to pop on your bathroom counter. On top of your brushing, you can upgrade your Quip with a smart motor to track and improve your brushing with the free Quip app. Earn amazing rewards like free refills, products, target gift cards, and more with stylish and affordable electric brushes starting at just $25. You won't be paying through the teeth for better oral care. Trust me, you've got to try it. Go to getquip.com editors right now for your first refill free. Plus, shop Quip's lowest prices of the year this holiday season. That's G-E-P-Q-U-I-P dot com slash editors. Quip, the good habits company. So, Charlie, Donald Trump, in a rage over the revelations in the Twitter files, called for the suspension of all rules, his reinstatement or new election or something or other, and the rules that could be suspended, he made clear, include the United States Constitution itself, what the founders never intended to protect rig elections when it was uh, <laughs> clear in retrospect to, to, I don't know, Trump himself or people around him that this was, you know, bat, you know what. 
he came out with a, yet another truth, truth social post the next day saying it was the, the, the biased, rigged, corrupt media that was trying to convince people that he'd come out for suspending our wonderful constitution. What do you make of it? I think that it is disqualifying. I think it is yet again disqualifying. I think it is the latest disqualifying utterance from former President Trump. I know there are some people out there who want to downplay this, either because Trump is not in office, because they've assumed that he's not going to be the nominee, because they think he's just blowing off steam in some corner of the internet, because they think perhaps that the 2020 election was stolen and that this is the fruit of that theft. It wasn't, and it's not. But it would be a mistake to do that, not least because Donald Trump is not some guy at a bar not a crazy uncle at Thanksgiving, as the meme has it. He is the only declared candidate for president of the United States in 2024. The only declared candidate for president in 2024 is preemptively discussing terminating, suspending, undermining, circumventing, however you want to put it the U.S. Constitution, and that matters. Why do we have elections? Why do we have primaries? Why do we spend so much time and effort ahead of the voting, examining the people who hope to be in positions of power? The idea that we should ignore or downplay or marginalize what Trump said as a declared candidate is ridiculous. In any other context, it would be ridiculous. And of course, it would be ridiculous to the very people who are doing the downplaying. I said during the last election that Biden's statements about our constitutional order were alarming. I was particularly bothered by his refusal to condemn court packing. He ended up candidate Biden in a position in which he would not only refuse to condemn or disavow court packing, but in which he said that the public did not deserve to know his position. <laughs> like he literally said that. I thought that was a problem. And not once, not once did I get an email from anyone who disliked Biden saying, you're being ridiculous. He can't do it. He won't have the votes. No. This was seen as indicative of a rotten mind, of a political outlook that was, in important respects, at odds with our constitutional order. And so it has come to pass. Over and over again, Biden has taken a legal action. And then when that illegal action, as it should have been, was struck down by the courts, he has blamed the courts. I see no reason whatsoever to treat Donald Trump differently. And in fact, I think we have all the evidence that we need that Trump is serious about this. Occasionally, the guy does blow off steam, but not here. What did Donald Trump do when he lost the 2020 election? He didn't just rant about it. He didn't just make vague appeals to fraud, corruption, he didn't just make his speech ahead of January 6th and the riots on that day. He tried to rewrite the 12th Amendment. This isn't my opinion. He did it. He said that Mike Pence, under the 12th Amendment as interpreted by him, could be turned into an elections dictator. He said that the Electoral Count Act of 1877 permitted the loser of the election to be declared the winner. So sure, when he says ahead of 
the next election, an election in which he's running. That what happened in 2020, what actually didn't happen, but what he thinks or wants to believe happened in 2020, was so egregious that the existing laws, statutes, even the Constitution, can be suspended. We ought to believe him because he's tried it once before. I keep saying this to people. I don't care about the riot on January 6th. I care about it as a terrible event, as a desecration of the nation's capital and of our legislature. But I don't care about it in the grand sweep of history. The notion, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez insists, that we were one hour away from a coup because those people got into the chamber is ridiculous. There is no mechanism by which that could have been achieved. But there was a mechanism, had he brought enough people along with him, by which Donald Trump could have been declared president again, and he identified it himself. Now, the Constitution is thankfully strong enough to withstand it, but we don't put people in a position in which they try. He took an oath. So, Jack, I I, kind of lost track, but there have been so many things that he's said since 2020 where I've thought to myself, this is is absolutely the craziest and most, most unworthy thing that a former president of the United States has ever said, or even thought, you know, in, in some cases, it's, it's hard to imagine anyone's ever thought some of the things he's said. And this, this just instantly goes to the top of that list. Yes. And in this respect, it is fitting that Trump's social media platform, the format of the tweet equivalents are called truths, because these are very much his truths, by which I mean, they're, they're false. <laughs> um, they're fake. It didn't happen. I, I'm, I'm very taken lately with these uh, Jonathan Frakes um, f- fact or fiction beyond belief show compilations where he just says over and over again that it's not true. So it's me to get Jonathan Frakes to just say to Donald Trump that th- these things, a writer made them up. Anyway, so yeah, it's nonsense, except it's, I guess I suppose it's easy to dismiss because there's, we have such a record of Trump saying things that are hyperbolic or nonsensical, but as, as Charlie just outlined here, we have the evidence in reality that he's willing to act on this belief, mm-hmm. and that's disturbing. And also, just from a sheerly practical perspective, so let's say that you care about some of the things that Trump cares about, you admire some aspects of his record in office. These are both uh, defensible positions, things, positions that I share. If you have someone who is clearly just monomaniacal about this one topic, seems to be the main thing that he cares about, uh, and when you have a midterm outcomes, when you have midterm outcomes that were candidates who tried to espouse this belief, it was a detriment to their their campaigns. But it was also the the very thing that Trump looked for in candidates that he supported and endorsed. Just from a sheer practical level, is this the guy that you really want to carry your banner forward? I would think not, unless all that you really care about is this bizarre universe in which Trump's grievances, Trump's whims are what you think the sum total of conservatism is. And it's not the sum total of what I think conservatism is. And I, I just, it, it seems very odd and very cramped, uh, to say nothing of the irrationality of it all, to just indulge and think highly of a man who is obsessed with this one topic and has no inclination really to act on or care about anything else. I mean, when, when he goes through his stump speeches, etc., I, I went to one of these, his, de- his debut rally uh, back as a political candidate, well, and, and not declared political candidate yet, but this was in the summer of 2021. And he went, this was in Ohio. He went through a list of, of things that I remember, they, they were in the news at the time, critical race theory is bad. Uh, the woke generals are bad. There, there are things that like I agree with, but though that was when he, when he went through these things, he was not actually that excited about them. The thing that got him really worked up was the 2020 election being stolen. That is, he's a sort of Ahab on this topic. And like, do you really want that person as your standard bearer? Like, just from a 
a philosophical and practical perspective? I, I would think not. I mean, and this is leaving aside what Charlie already outlined about how he's willing to act on this uh, and on all of the injurious effects that would have if repeated. I, I just don't get it. And I, I'm, I find it exhausting that we continue to try or are continually forced to inhabit this realm where Donald Trump's truths, lowercase and uppercase T, are something that we have to take seriously. So, Jim, let's talk about prominent people who inhabit that realm, whether they like it or not, which is uh, elected Republicans. And you, you've you've had more backlash, understandably, justifiably, one would hope so, to this than to other past Trump statements. But there's still clearly a, a cheeriness around it. They, they uh, Mike Rounds, we were talking about his tweet before we started recording. You know, it's, it's very forceful in defense of the Constitution, which is great, but but doesn't mention Donald Trump by name. And, you know, if there, there's any ever any cause to call out this guy by name and and just put it out there on the record how appalling you think it is, this this would be it. Yeah, I might be echoing Charlie Cook here. So if Cook, if Charlie has said this publicly or I've just heard him say this privately, then my apologies for anybody who's heard it before. But generally, if a Republican's asked, what do you think of this latest thing Trump said? Then there's no excuse for not coming out and saying, this is horse pucky, and you don't have to use the pucky word. This <laughs> is uh, an assault on the Constitution. This is, you know, you, you should be denouncing it fully forthrightedly, full-throatedly, uh, with no hesitation, no equivocation, anything like that. I understand if a lawmaker who isn't asked about it doesn't feel the need to put out a press release every single time Trump opens his mouth and says something stupid or jumps onto Truth Social and puts out something stupid because then those Republican lawmakers would almost never have time to do anything else. This happens, if not every day, every couple of days. And I thought Charlie put it very well when he said, Trump will say, let's, you know, was it boil the uh, redheads in tomato soup or whatever it was? And the next day he (laughs) said he didn't he didn't mean to say it and, and all that kind of stuff. This, when I saw that that statement or that tweet, or it wasn't really a tweet, it was Truth Social. Rich, I imagine you've been to at least one presidential inauguration, right? Probably a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're not my favorite events, to be honest. Cold. Cold. I was going to say, I went to the you know second Bush-Cheney one. and But everybody's, I imagine, at yeah, least definitely there. I think it was that, that one and the first Obama one. The first Obama one was was massive. Yeah. But but Trump Trump's was bigger. We all okay. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Let's not forget his truth on that on that question. <clears throat> yeah. Before you know, so like at every single one of them, there's this really important moment, and everybody gets to see it. The president says, "I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States." Yeah. Rings if you are calling for the <laughs> Constitution to be terminated, you are violating your oath. And some presidents add a "So help me God" to this part. So you've said before God, I promise to do this and nothing will stop me from doing it. And then. So so, so wait, wait a minute. I've learned something. So this, so help me God is not, not uh, obligatory. It's not in article two, section one, Mm. clause eight. All right. Thank you. But like, like Trump literally is violating his oath right now. You cannot be president if you're saying I want to suspend the constitution. Now we can argue and have argued. That a whole bunch of Democrats ignore the Constitution, particularly, say, the Second Amendment. But that's what we have a Supreme Court for. You know, say, well, when you're putting here as a de facto ban on all guns, ergo, you are, therefore, you are uh, violating the Second Amendment. But in this one, there's no wiggle room. He's explicit. Terminate the Constitution. I can't think of anything more disqualifying for a president to say, other than maybe echoing Kanye West. Hey, Jim, (laughs) do you know who else has taken an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution? You. Me. <laughs> Me. Yeah. Immigrants have to before they can become citizens. This is a... Charlie, at least you, 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 followed, you followed through more than most. No, but immigrants. it's an odd little wrinkle that my wife has... So at at least Melania is staying true to her oath. rate <laughs> <laughs> in the Trump family. Jack Butler, ask a question to you. This fracas, which, put it mildly materially affects Donald Trump's chances in the Republican uh, primaries, yes or no? I know I've been the, the a somewhat, if not 
pessimistic than not optimistic person, but I think it does marginally in the sense that Phil Klein described the West Fuentes debacle as hurting Trump by just making it all seem like amateur hour and not, not necessarily getting people worked up about the ideological dimensions of it, but just like, okay, do we really want to deal with this uh, anymore? So I think, yes, I think it will just a little bit. Charlie Cook. Yes, I think I agree with Jack. I think it contributes to a general impression of chaos that is not tied to anything concrete. There's no win Mm -hmm. here. He's not moved the ball. He's just, I mean, if you look at what he's focused on, it's two elections ago now. So I think it will hurt him at the edges by adding to the growing impression that he is mm-hmm. unfocused and crazy. Yeah, it's not like saying I'm, I'm building a wall and, and a lot of people are outraged by it and st- sticking to it and emphasizing border security. There's no, there's no right. larger ideological point here for most people. Jim Garrity? Yes, in part kind of echoing what Jack said, that like what's he done right since he announced his presidency? Mm-hmm. He's been president. Uh, it shows that the Fuentes Kanye West dinner was not an accident. It was not a one-off. This is the new Trump, the you know crazier and and more destructive than the old Trump. And finally, if by okay. you know Trump, if Trump ended up getting the nomination, it means that from now until election day twenty twenty four would be a question. Be so exactly what parts of the Constitution do you want to terminate, Mister Trump? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Article twelve, isn't that the one he said that uh, we have? So I, I agree with uh, with everyone. It, it uh, at least marginally makes it less likely that he'll be the Republican nominee. With that, let's hear from our final sponsor of this episode, Masterworks. Over 580,000 users, over $650 million invested. We've talked about Masterworks all year. These are legit SEC-qualified offerings. You can find their filings at SEC. .gov. Masterworks has nine sales to date, six of them this year alone. Most recent painting sold was November for a 13.9% net return. That brings their last three sales to 13, 17, 21, and 33% net returns to investors. Masterworks has so much demand, they're now adding at least a painting every week. Paintings have sold out in literal minutes, but we're giving you access. Just go to masterworks.gov com slash editors that's masterworks.com slash editors see important disclosures at masterworks.com slash cd again it's masterworks.com slash editors so jack butler what we've all been waiting for your take on killer rabbits san francisco had a debate about this had a, a vote you go back to killer rabbits it's, did i did i say rabbits again you did. yeah you did <laughs> it's uh it's a weird tick please forgive me carrots are forgive never going to be safe yeah. i think we know what robots you're i'm just going to call them robots because obviously, well, obviously if i call them killer uh the, the rabbits com- comes out of my my, my i need i need a, a brain chip which we're also going to discuss to to get this one right <laughs> But uh, San Francisco voted to give police the b- ability to deploy robots that can kill. Let's say it, this, say it that way. Um, there's debate <laughs> over this. Yeah, of course, in San Francisco, so uh, uh, there, there is a one school of thought that said that this will harm non-white people the most. And there are others that said, you know, this sounds like a bad sci-fi movie. And there's been, you know, op-eds and discussion about it since. So killer robots, Jack Butler, yes or no? <laughs> no, and I should clarify: the robots could be rabbits. They, they could. We could make them anything we want if that would help confuse you less. They they uh, they seem much less threatening if they if they're in the shape <laughs> of rabbits. Well, you'd think that, but if you watch these videos from this company, Boston Dynamics, who which seems every once in a while to just brag about its uh, ability to imitate our our robotic eschaton. Then you, you see that they they can resemble the the dogs and I guess rabbits wouldn't be that far. So yeah, I'm against I'm against the killer robots, and so you you hinted at the that I've been waiting a long time for us to discuss this topic. What I've really been I, waiting I hint, for I didn't hint I said it. You said it right. Uh, I, I interpreted your esoteric remarks. What I've really been waiting for is a chance to quote Dune. Thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a human mind. <laughs> that's what I've been waiting to say for all this time. <laughs> and that's really, 
I, I could go into all sorts of scenarios and reasons and ethical concerns about this that, that are similar to what I've said about self-driving cars, which you favor and I oppose. Um, but really what concerns... Imagine those self-driving cars are armed. That will be, that will be the ultimate. What are you trying? Is this like rollerball or something? What, what do you what do you what do you want to happen here? What I, what ultimately concerns me is the trend toward a future in which we are outsourcing the basic functions and aspects of humanity to external tools. And I guess you could argue that this has been the progress of civilization since its inception. But I think that there is a certain point at which you cross over into ways in which we become increasingly less human and, and aspects of our humanity that we should and do prize and treasure are compromised ever more in, quest, in the quest of unattainable or perhaps things that shouldn't be attained, objects. So, so does that apply like, you know, humans walk, that's how we get around. So does that apply to cars? What do you mean? What, what does what well, apply? What, what, oh, we're oh less, I see. We're less human when we're driving, right? No, that's what I'm saying. So you, this is, I, I've tried to establish that there are certain advances that are sensible, but beyond which uh, we would not like them. So I'm not a, I'm not a Rus Russell Kirk called cars mechanical Jacobins. Yeah. I do not agree <laughs> with Russell Kirk about that. He, he, but he was a principled man. He never learned to drive. So I admire at least his principles. Uh, I, I guess it helps if you never stray that far from Piety Hill, which is a, a lovely place. But so I, I just think, and it's hard because the people like you, Rich, are always saying, asking questions like the one you just asked to people like me who are uh, trying to be flies in the ointment or sticks in the mud or whatever analogy you use because some, a lot of these, uh, these advances throughout, throughout history have been good. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not a Unabomber type person. Uh, I do not think the Industrial Revolution and its consequences well, have been a disaster news. for the human race. Yeah, unlike Blake Masters, I'm not a big fan of the Unabomber. But um, I, I think that we could be progressing toward a future in which those questions and concerns will become more valid. And it'll be, it'll be, it can be kind of tricky to figure out when that is and when it's not. But I, I think to dismiss such concerns out of hand will not be helpful to make sure that we keep our humanity intact. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take your point. I, I do not think that killer robots, that r robots, oh my gosh, that are ah. controlled they're controlled by the police <clears throat> and decide when to, when to shoot or not in any way reduce our humanity. If they do, then, then they're just all, all sorts of, you know, every aspect of the Industrial Revolution, quote unquote, reduced our humanity. Where it would be more concerning is if these robots have autonomy, uh, yeah. obviously, and, you know, the brain chips, which, Charlie, we've had some brain chip conversation the last week or so because Elon Musk, when he's not consumed with... Twitter is trying to to create brain chips that will, uh, as a matter of the first order, help uh, desperately disabled people do things like walk again. But also, you can imagine, you know, increase our brain power that you know gets gets to the kind of issues that that Jack is concerned about. I'd say prematurely, but I think they're legitimate concerns. But where where are you on this stuff, Charlie? I think if it's done sensitively and thoughtfully these sorts of innovations can be a net positive, but we ought not to kid ourselves here. These ideas, both killer robots and brain chips, are going to intersect very awkwardly with our constitutional order and our expectations in areas such as crime. We have all sorts of provisions in our law and in our culture that are built on top of long-standing presumptions of culpability and conscience and mens rea and those will be diluted here if you have a killer robot that is quite genuinely under the control of a human being then in theory, it's not much different than, say, a sniper rifle. 
If you have a killer robot, however, that has some autonomous capabilities, you really do have to get into the question of who is in charge and who's responsible and who's to blame and under what circumstances. The same goes for brain chips. And a brain chip that helps an Alzheimer's patient with everyday functions or diminishes shaking or what you will would be one thing. A brain chip that improves human response times and thought processes would be quite another. We don't like it in our culture when somebody takes drugs so that they can hit a fastball better. And what happens when a brain chip leads somebody to sense danger and act on it? What happens when a brain chip puts somebody at a competitive advantage with another person? What happens when a brain chip alters the chemistry that leads to people's decision-making and they end up accused uh, of something serious? And I, I just, I think these are, are big questions that we, we need to think through and we're not. What we will do is do so post hoc. We will wait to see all of the problems that arise and then we will deal with them. And I suppose that's normal. But that alarms me in the short term, if not the long. So, Jim, uh, feel free to go anywhere on this topic. Robots, brain chips, whatever. I'll just say I think I deserve credit for coming up with the idea of brain chips because 10 or 15 years ago, <laughs> oh, I know what? what it was. As I was in a, in a meeting, a conference room here at the the uh, NR World headquarters, I said to Jay Nordlinger, what we need is like, you know, you're in a meeting, your phone's down on the table because you don't want to be rude, but it's a, a Yankees day game. You want to know the score. What you need is a brain chip where you can pull up the ESPN app and check the score and not, not bat an eyelash or, or make a move. And I predicted to him that this would eventually come. It, it is going to come. We're going to have Wikipedias in our brain. But as Charlie points out, Jim, you know, this raises all sorts of issues because there's going to be a temptation to control uh, behavior. You know, the Chinese government still exists as it currently does. They'll, they'll brain chip everyone and make them more uh, compliant and uh, um, more prone to, to take instructions. There'll be a natural tendency even in advanced Western societies. Can we eliminate criminality by messing around with the electoral um, pulses, electric impulses, uh, pulses and, and certain people's brains so it is a it's a heavy and and uh, uh pretentious top so what you need rich is basically what they used to have with the google glasses where you yes. can have a computer yes. screen on your on your glass or you eventually I, the day will come when and, you, well, yes but then you have to wear google glasses that was the only problem with google glasses. <laughs> well, the day will come that you're gonna they're gonna they'll be able to put that on a contact lens and people will mm, know right, that you'll be right. looking at something so I am blessed with a teenager who follows these sorts of issues intensely. Your teenager might be making a brain chip as we speak. I <laughs> would not put it past. Um, <laughs> and I have gotten a lot of talks. Dad, there is, you, know, you can't have Skynet rising. It's not like the Terminator movies. It's not like the, the sci-fi movies of you growing up. The only way an a, a artificial intelligence can decide to destroy the world is if somewhere in the programming somebody puts in Hey Skynet, you should be, maybe it's best to get rid of humanity and then you'll be able to save the world. Like that you that it has to be put in there, that kind of malicious intent that is the basis for so many of these doomsday scenarios. I'm sure that's what they always say just before Skynet takes over the world. Yeah, that's say, exactly right. I, I I've tried explaining <laughs> this to the teen. But as you've ever tried to explain something to a teenager, they're not always <laughs> so receptive. Um this stemmed, I, I believe this topic stemmed because of that San Francisco story. And my reaction was, oh, my God, this is Omni Consumer Products from Robocop selling <laughs> this perfectly dysfunctional, mass murdering, massive machine uh, to the city for law enforcement that is just this absolute, you know, dysfunctional nightmare. Um, and, uh, you know, like, oh, good. Good news, OCP. San Francisco's in the market for this. <laughs> if I remember correctly, Rich, you kind of responded that there was more potential to this. Uh, than, than, you know, the, the dystopian sci-fi movies would suggest. If we really want to try this, and I understand that there was someone who was killed by a robot, I think it was down in Dallas when yeah, they had a, a Dallas, bomb. Yeah, they strapped a bomb to a robot. I would really like to see San Francisco deploy 
Robo Poop Scoopers. <laughs> what about some other problem that does not require lethal force? And then see how that works. Let's see how they do with that. Some robots that kind of hustles around, hustles around the, the, the uh, homeless people. And, and if it does something <laughs> great, good. Okay, well, then we can we can experiment. All right, this like that. But I know like, you know, first of all, San Francisco, which not that long ago, London Breed was all on board with the abolish the police, cut the police budget. Ah, police are the worst. All of a sudden, there's this massive crime wave, and now London Breed's like, oh, no, I love police. Police are awesome. Let's increase the budget. And now we've gotten to the point where San Franciscans, here comes RoboCop. We are <laughs> calling the killer robots. There's no in-between. There's no middle <laughs> And I think if you think people aren't trusting of the police now, wait until it looks like Terminators. <laughs> right, right now, most of the police uh, robots that I've seen, they basically look like little garbage cans. Uh, so that that's less that's less frightening. So but I, I'll say that, that you know there's some school thought that that you know the police are just going to go crazy. There, there's a, a piece of guy wrote the Washington Post. It, they're just going to be mowing people down with their killer ro- robots now that ha- they have this new technology. <laughs> I think it'll actually make them less likely to shoot because an, an element of erroneous shooting sometimes it's just malice, but is is fear. And, you know, also in uh, mass, mass shooting situations, we had the, the terrible one down in Florida and Uvalde where the cop, the cop or the cops just didn't do anything for fear of getting shot. So I think these robots will be really useful in that respect. Exit question to you, Charlie Cook. Brain chips will become a, a widespread feature of humanity at some point in the future. Yes or no? Yes, at some point in the future. Probably not in my lifetime. Jim Gary. Don't care, won't live that long. <laughs> Jack Butler. Uh, no, because by the time we have brain chips, we won't be human anymore. So they won't be a widespread feature of humanity. Uh, picked up, but it was a trick question. Yeah. Uh, I want to read, just as part of my answer to this exit question, there was a great tweet that basically sums up my views on this matter. Uh, sci-fi author. In my book, I invented the Torment Nexus as a cautionary tale. Tech company. At long last, we have created the Torment Nexus from classic sci-fi novel, Don't Create the Torment Nexus. <laughs> That's all I have to say. All right, so let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrett, you've been thinking about the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack. Yeah. I'm playing it softly in the background. I'm hoping we don't get sued because of it. So I'm going to pause. But anyway, so look, it's we're, we're now in Christmas season. Uh, it is one of my favorite seasons, but I've always had a certain amount of, I've always had a certain amount of melancholy to it. Um, whether you're thinking about, you know, I mentioned my, my teenage, my teenager and my near, my near teenager and how they're not as small as they used to be, um, or Christmas is growing up. There's always a nostalgia that's mixed with a bit of sadness that those days are never quite ever going to be able ah, to geez. be brought back. And I just kind of goes, down. Well, a lot of these songs on, on, uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack, there are a lot of great ones and a lot of upbeat ones, but there are ones that are kind of softer and more mm-hmm. uh, melancholic and kind of capturing that moment, that sentiment of nostalgia. So I've been listening to that a lot. Again, if you're enjoying Christmas and you can't get it, be as festive as you like, but I just kind of recognize that there's always this little undercurrent of times gone by to all of these classic Christmas songs. I think I saw something in an email just yesterday saying that the, the, the main song was written by the guy in like five minutes, literally. Composed in five minutes. You would never know by listening to it, but I don't find that implausible. I'll I'll send that to you. So, Jack Butler, you've been reading Ray Bradbury. Yes, I just reread the Martian Chronicles, and it's been probably fifteen or sixteen years. I caught it at just the right time when I was a early teenager, but I my memory of it was not great, and I it is much darker than i remember uh, a lot of a lot of martians using telepathy to murder humans uh and it's also f- in some respects funnier than i remember there's a there's one story where uh one human realizes that there's a, a, a human male realizes that there's uh he's alone on the entire planet and discovers that, that there is a female and then meets like runs around the planet trying to find her then meets her and then turns out that he doesn't like her very much and then mm-hmm. uh drives across the planet to escape her. <laughs> so it's just like, I wonder how much of this I picked up on when I was 13. But either way, I'm glad that I'm rediscovering it now. Charlie Cook, the show Cheers. I have been watching the show Cheers. I'm trying to educate myself in your American ways, and this is one <laughs> of the 
cultural touchstones that I missed because it started before I was born and finished before I moved here and wasn't featured on British TV in the way other American shows such as Seinfeld or Friends were. It's a fantastic show. It's really well acted. The writing is superb. I'm only in season one, so I don't know if it goes downhill. I do know that some of the people who I know from my general cultural knowledge are in it are not yet in it. But the original cast is fantastic. And um, I'm glad that I'm filling this hole in my American cultural knowledge. So I had quite the thrill. I we've been doing these YouTube videos to try to revivify revivify the NR YouTube channel. It, I, I don't even know whether that's the correct term because it was never particularly lively to uh, begin with. But we've been posting a bunch of uh, videos, and I did a video interview that we're going to post tomorrow, the uh, Wednesday, the seventh. Recording here on on the sixth with Paul Kennedy, just an amazing Yale historian. He just came out with a new book called Victory at Sea about the uh, war on the seas in World War II. And just as a lark, I was like, yeah, he'd be great to have on uh, Pearl Harbor. Send him an email, see what happens. What a warm and, and wonderful guy. We had a terrific conversation that'll be up um, on the YouTube channel tomorrow. Please check it out. If you have any, any interest in Pearl Harbor or World War II, you'll, you'll love hearing Paul Kennedy. And I believe if I can get on my horse here we'll, and edit the thing, we'll also have a, a transcript hosted on the website. So it's that time in the podcast for our editor picks, Jim Garrity. What's your pick? Well, once again, a lot of strong options, but I went with Charlie's. Aren't you all tired of this crap? Uh, in part because of the succinctness of that message. But it was earlier this year, Charlie went through some imaginary topic and went through how each corner of the media would respond. And he ba- he observed that, you know, whatever topic could come along, I'd speculate about whether it would help the Jets coaching staff or something like that. <laughs> in this one, Char- as I kind of alluded to earlier in our conversation, he imagines uh, Trump saying people with red hair ought to be drowned in butter. And he kind of walks through day by day, how the MAGA crowd would interpret that, how the rest of the country would interpret that, and how Trump would insist he had never said it, which is kind of what we saw with the, you know, terminate the Constitution comments from earlier in the week. You know, I'm ex- as exasperated and exhausted and fed up with this as Charlie is. I just hope, you know, from his lips to the entire American electorate's ears. Jack Butler, what's your pick? I'm going to pick everything that Dominic Pino wrote about the uh, rail strike and the deal to avert it, uh, Dominic, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, is capable of understanding uh, the nitty-gritty of various policy and technical issues extremely well, and he just nailed this one and uh, dispelled various uh, misconceptions of, misconceptions about what was actually happening in a clear and concise manner. So kudos to Dominic for helping me to understand this very complicated topic Charlie Cook. I'm going to pick your piece, Rich, on DeSantis derangement syndrome. Not just because I loved one of the lines where you wrote about George W. Bush. He was considered a semi-fascist throughout his presidency, despite being an advocate of democracy, literally to a fault, which, of course, is true. But we are, if we're correct that Trump's star is fading, about to enter into a period in which all of the same claims are made about DeSantis that were made about Trump and won't be true. One of the problems with Trump is that it is, of course, fair to say that the press and the Democrats have been saying the same thing about Republican presidents since Barry Goldwater. It's just that with Trump, they often turned out to be correct. Well, they won't be forever. And it's going to change the dynamic greatly. And I think just the examples that you gave in this piece reminded me of what it sounds like when criticisms of a Republican figure who is widely liked do not land, do not comport with reality, which has not been the case under Trump, but would be the case if DeSantis became the nominee. So thanks, Charlie. My pick is Ed Whalen's typically surgical dissection of how the slate's dishonest coverage of the Colorado 
case that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in yesterday. It is uh, must reading if you want to understand the oral arguments and how the left is trying to play games uh, and how they describe them. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a Nash Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of Nash Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jackie B. Thanks to Act and Unwind, Quip, and Masterworks. Thanks especially to Killer Rabbits. We are the editors. We'll see you next time. <laughs> 